0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Most of us go through life focused on the impact and the consequences of our actions, and rightly so, but at times we're impacted, sometimes in great ways, by the consequences of someone else's actions. We are helpless, if you will, in that place. It might be the head of a company, a CEO makes a poor decision or an immoral decision or falsifies some report and the entire company is affected or in the case of some massive companies like uh, the Enron Corporation, perhaps most famously, the energy giant that went bankrupt and with it went thousands and thousands of jobs along with retirement accounts, life savings, all kinds of consequences Or it might be the head of your country, if our president enters into a treaty, could have consequences for all of us. It may have financial consequences, it may have military consequences, it may increase our taxes, it may even increase our risk of death if we're called to serve in the the, uh, pleasure of our president for such a treaty. But as citizens of this country, we're bound... To the consequences of his choices. But among all the people who could ever impact you, there are two whose impact is beyond measure. Because these two people have an impact that is so lasting and so broad that they really couldn't be, they couldn't be uh, uh, stood alongside of anyone else that you'll ever encounter, that you'll ever be related to. And those two people are Adam, the original man, and Christ. Those are the two people who are the focus of Paul's uh, section in Romans chapter 5, the section that we turn our attention to today, beginning in verse 12 and running through the end of the chapter. Those two men and their relationship to you and to me are the subject of Paul's extended discussion here. And it is admittedly a difficult passage to understand, one of the more difficult in all of Scripture, doesn't matter if this is your first Sunday or your 500th uh, Sunday in church, these are difficult concepts, whether you're a new believer or a mature believer, whether you've studied the Bible a little or studied the Bible a lot. But although these things are difficult to grapple with, they are extremely important In Paul's argument and even in the context of our own day with so many false ideas about life and about death and about goals and about dreams that the world has around you, this passage of Scripture speaks right into what dictates our life so much every day. Now just to prepare ourselves to think through these uh profound concepts, let's just begin by reading these verses and, and then trying to identify some key questions that we need to ask about this passage. Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that grace of the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin for judgment followed one tre- uh, one trespass brought uh, following excuse me one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through the one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, as I said, there are some difficult things in these verses, but the main point, the larger point, is clear. There's a comparison. There is an analogy that Paul's giving us here. He's drawing an analogy between the man, Adam, and the man, Jesus Christ. And he's pointing out something very similar, something very profound about both of these men. He's saying that each one of them, by one single act, by one single act, has profoundly impacted Or we might even say has a profound impact on everyone who is related to them. Their single action has eternal consequences for every person who is related to them. That part of what Paul's saying is clear. And it's clear from that what the impact is. From the act of one person, sin and death entered into the world. And from the act of the other person, Righteousness and life are given. And so on one hand, Paul talks about sin reigning in death through Adam. And on the other hand, he talks about grace reigning in life through Christ. That is the major dividing point of the passage. That is ultimately the issue that's at stake. It is your relationship to these two men. Your relationship to Adam and Your relationship to Christ, you might divide the world up in all kinds of ways in how you think of them. You may think of the world around you as divided into all kinds of groups, different nationalities, different languages, different cultures, different races, different educational levels, different uh, social levels, economic levels, whatever it might be. But according to the Bible, there's really only one division that matters. It's not you and some other nationality. It's not you and some other race. It's not you and some other education level. The only division that matters is the race of Adam's children and the race of Christ. Now, the way Paul makes this comparison is very, very important. And our understanding of how it works through the single act of each of these men is very important. But it's in our understanding of exactly how all that works that we can sometimes stumble over the details. So we want to break this down a bit and try to understand. All How all of this fits together because as we said, the way you understand the whole world around you, the way you understand your whole purpose in life, the way you understand why you get up tomorrow and what you're going to do with your time and your resources and your money, it all hinges on the way you understand your relationship to these two men. Framing it up another way, we might read this and ask... Where does death come from? Why is it that all people die? Why don't we live forever? Why is there disease and why is there decay and why is there corruption in the world around us? Why do we struggle against the the, the fading glory, if you will, of our bodies? Why do we fight so hard to stay healthy, to stay alive? How did death come about anyway? Why is man born to death? Why is corruption a reality? As I said, why don't we live forever? Has it always been this way? Will it always be this way? Will there always be disease? Will there always be decay? Will there always be corruption? And if not, how will it come to an end? Will there always be death? Is it possible for man to somehow, finally, one day escape death? Is that all there is? These are all so many of the questions that we could bring and find so many of the answers right here. They're not the answers that you'll hear from science. They're not the answers that you'll read in the tabloids. They're not the answers that... The world is spending so much of its time and hard-earned money and effort and ingenuity pursuing and so much that you give yourself to and how you spend each year on health care, on fitness, on nutrition, on retirement, on all so many other things simply aimed at extending your life or or somehow uh, battling back the corruption and yet the dominating reality that governs so much of what we do is... Death. It's death. Why is that? Well, Paul has answers. He speaks about the reign of death through Adam and the reign of life through Christ. The reign of death through Adam and the reign of life through Christ. Uh, Let's take this week. And look just at the first part of that, the reign of death through Adam, which is the main idea of verses 12 through 14. Now just a reminder, this whole discussion is connected to everything that Paul has said so far in the book of Romans, and in particular, he has given us this incredible truth in verse 10 that we are all reconciled to God, not by all the things that we do that can uh, build us up and make us pleasing to God, we're all reconciled to God by the death of Christ. By the death of Christ. It is that act which reconciles us. And so, in order to, to, to explain how all that works, if you will, he introduces this analogy, this comparison with Adam he says in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And right there, we encounter one of the difficulties of this passage because Paul begins an analogy just as, but he really doesn't finish it. So also. In fact, probably you see in your Bibles uh, at the end of verse 12 there a dash. Indicating an incomplete thought. Because Paul, in the following verses, he Digresses, or we might even say he expands on this idea that he's just presented in verse 12 about how sin came into the world through this one man. And he doesn't really get around to completing his comparison, or at least not until you get down to verse 18 where he kind of has to reintroduce it because he's left it for so long. He reintroduces the first part again so he can complete the comparison. He says in verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. But we're going to focus mainly on the first half of that comparison today and on that expanded explanation that Paul gives to us. And so we'll be trying to understand how sin came to reign in death through Adam and we'll see that Paul builds a case for this very simply, step by step, from the cause of death to the condemnation of death to the condition of death and ultimately to this comprehensiveness as we move through these couple of verses, four logical steps that explain how sin came to reign through Adam. The first one, the first step that we need to take is to understand the cause of of death. The cause of death in verse 12, Paul establishes the first part of his analogy by saying, just as sin came into the world through one man. That one man, as Paul explicitly says later, of course, is Adam. And of course, the Bible is explicit on this issue as well. Genesis 3 tells us the account from that time in world history. Sin entered the world through Adam and his wife, Eve. It wasn't, of course, the first sin ever, because Satan and his fallen angels had already committed sin before that time, but sin spread, or we might even say that Satan spread his corruption to mankind by tempting Eve and introducing sin into the world for the first time. Specifically, Eve was the one, we are told in Genesis, and Paul even affirms in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, Eve was the one who was the first to sin. But representatively, Adam was the one responsible for spreading sin and death to the entire world. And immediately we're introduced to this idea of representation. Representation. Because while it's universally recognized that Eve was the first to sin, it's also universally recognized that Adam was ultimately the one who was to blame for the corruption of humanity. And so we grasp this concept early that Paul is speaking both of Adam and of Christ as representatives, specific representatives roles that were assigned to them by God. And Paul's focus is on not any of the people who sinned after Adam, and not even on the one who sinned before Adam, but on Adam's individual sin, and not even all of his sins, but on the single act, his initial and single act of rebellion against God. And you see that emphasized again and again through the rest of the verses. For example, in verse 15, for if many died through one man's trespass, and probably most clearly in verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Or verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Or verse 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all people. So he's talking about Adam here. He's talking about him in a representative role. And he's talking about not his entire life of sin. But he's talking about one single act of sin. Adam in his representative role. Not even every sin he committed. But it's that one sin in which Adam was credited with bringing sin into the world. So with the initial cause of death being Adam's sin, Paul makes it much more explicit in the next step of his argument, which is the condemnation of death. The condemnation of death, as he says in the next phrase there, and death through sin. Sin came through one man and death through that sin. Before that time, death didn't exist. Before that time, death didn't exist in mankind and it didn't exist in the world. It didn't exist in the animal world. It didn't exist anywhere in creation. It didn't exist before the sin of Adam. We're told in the early chapters of Genesis that the world was created... And it wasn't created with sin, and it wasn't created with death, and it wasn't created with corruption, and it wasn't created with decay. In fact, God created the world without any of those things. He created it, and He declared that it was good. It was perfect. Mankind existed in the world before sin without any of those effects. Now, this obviously runs contrary to the framework of the world around us, which says that the world is the product of a random series, an accidental series of occurrences out of which came eventually the survival of the fittest. Eventually that which was Most conducive survived and that which was not conducive to its environment, that which was weak, that which was frail, that which was broken or whatever it might be, died away. And that's how we have everything that's around us today. And with that kind of framework... Death wasn't the result of a single act of sin. It was the long and repeated process, one organism dying after another until eventually you evolve into rational creatures who can make moral choices. And it's only at that point, after billions of years of death and decay, that you can finally have what we might call a moral choice of sin. But here, Paul is placing sin before death. He's placing moral creatures before death. And so sin is the cause of death. Now this is very, very important. Because if sin is what causes death, then by removing sin, you remove what? Death. If sin's what causes death and you remove sin and you remove the cause, you remove death. Death can be defeated when sin is no more. No more sin, no more death. Because sin is what causes it. But if death exists independent of sin, if it is just the natural byproduct of the processes of creation... Death existed for billions of years before you ever get to the point of the capability of some moral choice. If death existed before sin, then removing sin does not remove death. It came from somewhere else. In which case, death still reigns. In which case, there is no hope of eternal life. This is the basis of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There were some who were saying that there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead in the days to come. And Paul says, look, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then death is still reigning. And if death is still reigning, sin is still reigning, and Christ died for nothing. There is, there, in other words, there is an. Uh, uh, An unbreakable link drawn by the Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, between death and sin so that the removal of one means the removal of the other. If you ever want to know why Bible-believing Christians get so up in arms about the issue of evolution, secular evolution in particular, if you ever want to know why Christians get so up in arms about the concept of an evolutionary process that involves a, a repeated cycle of death for billions of years to get to the place where we are. If you ever want to know why Bible-believing Christians get so up in arms about that, it's because it's not about evolution. It's about death. And death is about sin. And sin is about salvation. And so to concede that area isn't just some some uh, sci- uh, scientific byproduct or some some scientific aside, to concede that area for a Bible-believing Christian is to concede salvation. It is to concede what Paul is saying right here is not true. And if what he says isn't true about Adam, then what he says about Christ is also not true. Now, it's important for you to understand this, that when Paul speaks about death, when the Bible speaks about death as a result of sin, it is speaking not only about physical death, but it's also speaking about spiritual death. And it's self-evident from the beginning chapters of Genesis, Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now if I were to tell you today, you know, if you go out there and, and uh, you know, if you purchase uh, such and such an item at such and such a store, that today... I will give you a rebate. Now, you would be somewhat upset if you went to the counter and you purchased your thing and they didn't give you your money back. You came to me and I didn't give you your money back. You would be upset if I did that because what you would understand by today is what? Today. Well, the same thing in Scripture. When God says today, He means today, in the day. In the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die, most surely die. And, of course, we know how history went in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3 records us that they eat of the forbidden tree. And immediately the result is not physical death. They don't drop dead on the spot. They don't physically die that day. And so it becomes obvious that what God is talking about when He says, "...in the day that you eat of that tree you will die." He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about spiritual death, which will eventually result in physical death. It introduces corruption and decay, but it is both and. Neither kind of death existed before that. Mankind was physically designed to live forever. He was spiritually alive in his heart and mind. And to say that man was spiritually alive is simply to say that he was responsive to God. He was in a relationship with God. He was intent on living for God and for God's honor and for God's glory. But when sin comes in, all of that changes. Man's relationship to God is suddenly broken. His fellowship with God is broken. His heart towards God is changed. His heart is hardened towards God. And instead of living for God's honor and glory, he suddenly becomes all about living for the deceitful pleasures of sin. Now instead of seeing the world as God sees it, mankind begins to form a corrupt view of the world. In the words of the book of Ephesians, mankind became futile in their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. They became callous and gave themselves over to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. This is what happened with spiritual death. And this is the Bible's description of mankind as a result of this death. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul had picked up on this same theme in Ephesians 2. He declared that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. That is the result of the fall of mankind. That is the result of Adam's disobedience. Now Paul refers to this here in Romans 5. Death came through sin. That was the curse. That was the punishment. That was the condemnation that God declared over Adam. Death through sin. Spiritual death and eventually physical death. And you'll notice the next step then in Paul's argument, which is this condition of death. The condition of death. This condemnation received by Adam spread To all people, or it was applied to all people. This is the basis of Paul's analogy sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. So now, because of Adam's sin, we all experience the condemnation that he earned, the penalty. For Adam's sin has spread to each one of us, so we all suffer the consequences of His one act. What are the consequences? Of course, physical death and spiritual death. We're born under this condemnation. We are born spiritually dead. Before you do anything to earn it, before you do anything to deserve it. You are born spiritually dead. We don't become that way. It's not as if each one of us individually choose to be that way. We aren't given the same choice that Adam was given. We aren't born in this world free. And, and, and then therefore subject to the consequences of our own individual choices. We are judged by God. God. We are condemned by God from our very inception. We're born under the condemnation that was handed down to Adam which means we are born into death and death has spread to all of us. Another way to say this is that we're guilty before we're ever born. And a consequence of that guilt is that we're dead spiritually. Paul saying that God treats each one of us, as if we had committed the sin that Adam committed. And so, we receive that condemnation. We receive that condemnation. That's not the only condemnation we receive. There are other condemnations, there are other sins for which you will be judged. Paul has already established that earlier in Romans that you are judged whether you're under the law or whether you're not under the law. Sometimes it's a law in your own conscience. A law written on your own heart. You're judged by what you know. You're judged by the amount that you know. And whether you are a a, a, a distant a pagan without any... Uh, exposure to Scripture and all you know about God is what you can discern about Him in creation in the stars, you're judged according to that. Or whether or not you are a pious Jew brought up under the law and you have full exposure to all the Scripture, you're judged according to what you know. So you're certainly judged by those sins, but what Paul's telling us here is that before you're ever judged according to those sins, you're born under judgment. You're born under judgment. Because you're born with the condemnation that Adam had. Your tiny zygote or embryo self. Whatever consciousness or lack of consciousness may be developed at that point. Is judged by God. And condemned. You might say, well, how can that be? I mean, how can that be fair? How can God punish me for something I didn't do? How can God punish me for something Adam did? Well, it's because God appointed Adam as the representative of the entire human race. And when someone stands as your representative, whether it is the head of your country, the head of your company, the head of your house, or whatever it might be, when someone stands as your representative... You face the consequences that are dealt out to them. And so when Adam was condemned, we were all condemned. This, of course, is called the doctrine of original sin. You might have heard of it. The doctrine of original sin. Not the doctrine of sin. That's the doctrine about your sins, your misdeeds, your lack of obedience. But this is the doctrine of original sin. Adam's sin. And there have been a number of attempts through the years by people to grapple with what Paul's saying here. B.B. Warfield, one of the greatest theologians in American history, categorized those attempts in three ways. There is, first of all, what he called the agnostic view. The agnostic view basically says it happened, but we can't explain why and we can't explain how it happened. God condemned us, that much we can say, but we're agnostic about the details. We're just going to punt. If you will, on trying to figure out why some I guess could take that and maintain their um you know composure and and whatever their 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 freedom of conscience, but really those who are interested in the details of the word are forced to go deeper, and so some have formed a view known as the realist view, which basically says that we were all there. In the condemnation of Adam in some real, physical, organic way. View sometimes has been called the seminal view. Today we might call it the genetic view. That's the idea that we were genetically connected to Adam. That there's a real, physical connection that we have with him. And so, when he or when God passed judgment... Against Adam and his being and his body, by the way, there was some organic physical connection to us that is now passed down genetically, if you will. Those genes have pronounced or have God's uh, uh, curse pronounced against them. And so we receive the condemnation because we were physically and really a part of Adam at that moment in some very, very minuscule way. There are a couple problems with that view, though, this realist or this genetic view. First of all, it doesn't explain why the responsibility is laid at Adam's feet and not Eve's. Now, you ladies say, well, I know why. (laughs) The corrupt nature comes through the man, right? I mean, come on, you know you've had that thought, right? I know why our kids are rotten. It's because of him. Now, you could try to suggest that somehow the male genetic code, not the female, gives us the propensity to sin, but it'd be a tough sell. It'd be a tough sell. It would seem that if all that was necessary for Paul's point is that we have some genetic connection with the first sinner, it would be sufficient for him to say that sin entered the world through Eve. And thus, she'd be the first to die spiritually because she sinned, and it would all be passed down to us. But he doesn't say that. He pins the blame on Adam. Representatively. Secondly, and more importantly, the realist or the genetic view doesn't properly establish the parallel that Paul's trying to make with Christ. The key point will eventually be given to us down in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men men. If the key to Paul's argument was all built on this idea of a genetic or physical relationship to Adam, then the logic of what he has to say down in verse 18 falls apart because none of us have a physical, genetic relationship to Christ. He had no descendants. None of us are descendants of his. And not only that, but we who are in Christ go from being condemned to being justified and reconciled, not because we're born genetically that way, but by believing, by by having the merit and the virtue and the righteousness of Christ representatively applied toward us. The way this operates in Christ is not that we were somehow physically connected to Him. He stands, as we said, As our representative in his death. And so the merit and the virtue of his single act of obedience. Is applied to us according to Paul. He takes the penalty of the law in full for us. And so just as God appointed Adam as a representative for all humanity. God appoints Christ as a representative of all who will believe. So they receive the credit for the righteousness of His obedience. So legally, we're given the credit for what we didn't do. We're given the credit for what He did. Now this is Paul's point in Romans five twelve. Death spread to all of us as a consequence of Adam's sin when God condemned him He condemned all of us and so legally we were pronounced sinners. And we inherited the corruption of His judgment. We're all born under God's wrath. We're all born guilty. And as a consequence of that, not only will all of our bodies eventually die, but we're also spiritually dead when we're born. We're spiritually dead And because we're spiritually dead, what do we do? We sin. We sin. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit whose work, and the sons of disobedience. And this is Paul's point in verse 12. Death spread to all men on the basis of which all sin. Now, I know your Bibles don't say that. Your Bibles say death spread to all men because all sin giving the impression that the reason that death has come to all of us is because all of us individually sin. Nearly every Bible translation has that, but at the same time, nearly every translator recognizes that that is not a very good translation of the Greek phrase behind the word. I don't want to get too technical with you here, but nearly everyone translates this as a causal conjunction. cause. But in fact, the Greek, F ho, is a relative clause. It has the word on and the word which, which most naturally might be translated on the basis of which. In other words, most naturally, it establishes the consecutive consequences, not the prior cause. Paul, in other words, is not giving the cause of why we die, he's giving the cause of why we sin. He's not saying we die because we sin. He's saying we sin because we died. Or we, we sin because we're dead. In fact, the repeated emphasis throughout this paragraph is exactly that, right? Death, condemnation is not the result of our individual acts of sin. It's the result of Adam's one single sin, right? I mean, what the whole paragraph is about, Remember this, verse 15, for if many died through one man's trespass, or verse 17, if by one man's trespass death reigned through one man, the whole point is not that you died because of your sins, the whole point is you died because of Adam's sin. So to say here that death is a result of our own sin would ruin the parallel that Paul's trying to make. And he would even be contradicting himself when he eventually comes back to restate his comparison down in verse 18 and and complete it. The key point he'll eventually make there, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Or even more clearly in verse 19, as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And so because of that, more and more scholars are recognizing that the translation of this phrase isn't because, but it ought to be something like on the basis of, or on the basis of which. Recognizing that Paul's talking about here, or what he's talking about here, is the condemnation of spiritual death. Because spiritual death came to all of us. On that basis, we all became sinners. Our sinning is a result of our condemnation under spiritual death. Tom Schreiner uh, says in this passage, or speaking in this passage, he says, Believers experience death because of personal sin, and yet it is also true that they sin because they enter the world spiritually dead. Paul's understanding of death is rooted in the Genesis narrative. For Adam is warned that he will die in the very day he eats from the forbidden tree. And yet, when we read the narrative, we see that Adam didn't immediately die. At least he and Eve did not drop dead the moment they ate of the fruit. Nonetheless, they died in the sense that their relationship with God was severed upon eating. Death is fundamentally and ultimately separation from God. What Paul teaches in Romans 5.12 is that all people sin... Because they enter the world spiritually dead, separated from God. Very quickly then, we turn to Paul's fourth step in his logical explanation here of how all this came about, how sin and death came to reign so much over the world, how you and I are born into sin and hopelessly bound to it in our own self. As he moves to the comprehensive nature of this. In verse 13, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even though of those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was the type of the one to come. Death, it was in the world, he was saying. Even for people who had no law. Even for people who had no law. Knowledge or no uh, specific commandment that they could violate, they still were condemned. And they were condemned before the law ever came. This is probably specifically Paul addressing the issue of Jews who would have thought that all death was a matter of not obeying the law. Paul has to address the issue of what happened before moses in fact it's interesting reading in jewish literature jews struggled with this concept so much that they dreamt up ways in which the law was secretly given before moses because they couldn't imagine a world in which people were judged without the law and so they had all kinds of they had all kinds of extra canonical, extra-biblical literature that was written um, creating stories of how the law was secretly given to Enoch or to different people at different times so that they could justify their position of works, so that they could establish the fact that if they keep the law, they are not under condemnation because by keeping the law, they have life. Well, Paul's saying, No. Before Moses ever came, death was there. Sin was there, but it wasn't being counted, he says. It's kind of like, you know, it's hot or it's cold, but even if you don't have a thermostat, it's still hot or cold, right? You may not can tell me it's 80 degrees, but I'll tell you, it's hot. You don't need a thermostat sometimes to know that things are there, but it would be hard to measure it. Well, he's saying, look, it wasn't being measured, and it wasn't being counted against them. But there was enough to condemn every person born. Why? Because of Adam's transgression. Because of Adam's transgression. Because he representatively stood and representatively was condemned. And so his condemnation came to you. Now if you're here today and, and that's your relationship, If you've been born as a descendant of Adam, you've been born under condemnation. If you're here today and you're part of the human race, that's what the Scripture declares about you. God's judgment is against you. Ephesians 2 says that you're born under the wrath of God. And it isn't because you haven't done enough good things or enough bad things. In fact, there's nothing that you could do there's no amount of works that you could accumulate. There's no way that you could ever undo what was done because you were born this way. You were born under the wrath of God. You say, well, it isn't fair. It isn't fair. God needs to look at all the good things I did. God needs to look at all the good deeds I did. He's got to take account of all my moral virtue. It isn't fair that it isn't fair that I would be you know, credited with the disobedience of one guy. Or you can... Stand back and say all day it's not fair. But what you really ought to be focused on is the fact that he sent another representative. A second representative. Who was like the first. He wasn't Adam, it was Christ. And the good news is that you can be credited with his righteousness. Which you never could do. Which you don't do. And although you're under the wrath of God and although you're under the judgment of God and although you stand in relationship to Adam just by the virtue of the fact that you're born into the human race, you can be in relationship to Christ. And when you're in relationship to Christ, what Adam did in terms of sin, Christ does in terms of salvation. Righteousness and life replace condemnation And death. This is the good news about all this. It may stretch our minds to understand why God set things up the way He did. We may not fully understand why He chose representatives the way He did. We may not know why we were all born the way we were born. But we can rejoice that from the beginning of creation, even to Adam and Eve, He began to promise a seed. He began to promise a Savior. He began to promise a representative who would come and stand in your place and take all the punishment of your condemnation by His single act. By His single act. Righteousness is brought to all who believe. Now Our challenge to you today is not just to fill your head with some knowledge, not just to know uh, some tidbit about a passage in Romans. Our challenge to you today is to examine your life. Where do you stand? Where do you stand in relation to Christ? Where do you stand in relation to your God? Are you still one who's unreconciled? Are you still one who is estranged because you're under His condemnation? Do you feel it? Do you sense and know That you're alienated from the life of God? Do you know that your heart is hardened towards Him? Do you know that death is still reigning in your life? Because if you do, our invitation to you today is this. That you would come into relationship with Christ. That you would recognize that relationship with Adam will get you nowhere. But relationship with Christ, that call is the call of life. Let's stand together, we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we couldn't be more grateful than to have such a Savior, such a representative. We are gathered here today with all of our various backgrounds, all of our various levels and status and sometimes even languages and race. We're gathered here today with all those divisions that the world looks at, but we're gathered here today all as the children of Adam. As the children of Adam, born under your wrath. And Lord, you would have been just to pour out your wrath in all your creation. You would have been just to simply be done with all of it to consume each one of us with fire. You would have been just because not only were we born under wrath, but we have validated it by our own sin. We have proven our condemnation by our corrupt deeds. But Lord, we're grateful for a Savior who Himself has accomplished what we could not accomplish. Dying in our place. Rising from the dead in victory over death. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who all they know is death. All they know is condemnation. All they know is fear. Lord, I pray that you would flood their hearts with the realities, with the knowledge of their representative, of the one who came to stand in their place. I pray, Father, that you would save those whom you've called. And for the sake of your glory, In your glorious name, amen.